Uh, you may have a seat. Thank you, gentlemen, team. And I want to invite the kids to go ahead and make their way to Redemption Kids this morning. Um, all of our classes are offered uh, this week. Last week, we kept the big kids in here for the baptism uh, stories and the baptisms. It was an awesome Sunday uh, here at Redemption Hill. So, uh, so thankful for what God's up to in our church. And uh, that always means what he's doing in individual lives, right? We're a collection of people uh, who are following Jesus or growing to know what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, and yet, uh, as we're this family, God is doing a good work in individual hearts. And uh, we're super thankful for uh, what he's doing. And even in the kids, let me just encourage you, continue to pray for the kids uh, as they learn about God uh, each and every week. Well, my name is Tanner Turley. I serve as one of the pastors here of Redemption Hill. Uh, really excited to start a new sermon series uh, with you this morning. And we're going to be journeying through the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, if you would turn there, it's Matthew chapter 5. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles we provide for you, it's page 509 uh, of the Bibles that we provide. And if you need a Bible, please take that as a gift uh, from us to you. And we would love for you to have that so you can read uh, God's Word anytime uh, you desire. Well, uh, as we dive into the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we need to understand that this sermon is Jesus' magnum opus. It is not only his longest sermon recorded in the Bible, but it is also his most famous sermon. And as we work our way through, you're going to hear uh, oft-repeated phrases uh, that have made their way into the culture, spoken by people who don't even know they're quoting Jesus. It's just that well-known. And as we encounter these words, what we're going to discover is that Jesus is inviting us into a new normal, okay? A new normal. And why are we calling this series the new normal? Well, uh, number one, uh, Jesus, when he speaks to us, when he speaks to anyone, he is always fundamentally inviting us into something new. Jesus offers not only new life, spiritually speaking, but he also offers a new way of living as we learn what it means to follow him. But it's not only something new, this new invitation to a new life, it is to be a new normal in our lives. And here's what I mean by that. There will be a temptation for us to take the words of the Bible and, and, and hear their lofty magnitude, hear the standard that Jesus is setting, okay, not a low bar, but a very high bar, and we're going to say, you know what, Jesus, like, you sound really good here, and that kind of, that, that kind of you know, uh, you know seems like I can get that done, but in these other areas, Jesus, you're just a little too radical for me. And so maybe, maybe you know, I can just... Uh, pick and choose uh, some of the things you say versus others, or, you know, when I really try to go after those lofty standards, uh, then perhaps, you know, uh, it's just like certain days of the week, you know what I'm saying? Just like, you know, a couple days here, a couple, this is a little too tough, a couple, couple days off. Uh, but, but what we find is that Jesus says, look, this should be the everyday moment-by-moment moment reality of your lives. As you learn to follow me, you are going to learn what it looks like to rejoice when you're persecuted, to lay aside anger, 
to conduct yourself in complete sexual purity. To, to do good without any motive for self-glory so that people can pat you on the back and praise and say, hey, look how spiritual you are. To store up treasures not on earth, but treasures in heaven. To not love money, not be anxious, not be judgmental. Choose the narrow path. Jesus sets a radical standard for us, and yet he says, as you learn to follow me, this will become the new normal of your life. And what I love about Jesus, when he calls people to follow him, it is a radical counterculture to what we were accustomed to before. Like when we really understand who he is and what he is inviting us into. And listen, that is not like I know what went through your mind, like a counterculture, okay, like, you know, like 21st century America. Like, no, 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 no. It goes way beyond that. We're talking about every culture in every age. Jesus is inviting us into a journey that cuts against humanity's natural inclinations apart from God's grace, infusing our lives with new desires and new loves and new thoughts and new ways into this new normal that he wants us to live. And so the Sermon on the Mount, quite simply, is a call to simple, essential, yes, normal Christianity. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It describes what life is like when we live under the reign and rule of God. And what we need to understand as we jump in, like we're jumping right into the fifth chapter of this 28-chapter book that uh, one of Jesus' disciples who was a tax collector who then like gave up that work to come and follow Jesus 24-7, okay, uh, he's writing this, this, this account of Jesus' life, but in the previous chapter, he records the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, all right? It was common for rabbis to begin their public ministry at the, the uh, age of 30, And so when Jesus started his ministry, the first words recorded out of his mouth were these, repent, it means to change, to have a change of mind that leads to a change of heart and action, okay, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so it's in the context of these words of Christ, this this kingdom vision, this kingdom mission, this, this whole different order that God is inviting us into that Jesus then teaches, which means we need to understand these words as describing what life looks like in the kingdom of God. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is going to present to us. And in the words of a pastor from the last century, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this about the Sermon on the Mount. I hope it encourages you, and I hope it challenges you simultaneously. He says this, if every Christian in the church today were living the Sermon on the Mount, the great revival for which we are praying and longing would have already started. Amazing and astounding things would happen. The world would be shocked, and men and women would be drawn and attracted to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this is what we're invited into. We're invited into 
a better way, a new normal that is so fundamentally like Jesus that it would be absolutely compelling and attractive and it will encourage every person around us as we live out this counterculture of the kingdom of Christ. And so Jesus' first words are very intentional here. He starts his sermon with words of blessing, and these words of blessing describe the characteristics of those that are following him, that are belonging to his kingdom. And, and, and what these, we're only going to focus on the first four uh, Beatitudes this week, and then next week we'll focus on the, the next or last four. But the first four expose our need before God. They expose our spiritual need before God. And so if I could give you one encouragement this morning is this. This is the point of the sermon. We're going to talk about this as we go through each of these verses together. Okay, it's simply this. To come to God empty-handed to receive his fullness. All right? Come to God empty-handed to receive his fullness. Let's read these first 12 verses together. This is what Matthew writes. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In verse 1, Matthew sets the stage. He provides the setting and the context for what's about to go down, okay? He says that Jesus, um, as the crowds were gathering around him as he performed these kingdom signs, these miracles of the kingdom, restoring health and healing where there was a brokenness and decay. Um, And the crowds were gathering around him, so he, he senses the need to pull back and just focus on teaching the people amongst the crowds that were truly following him. And and let me just remind us this morning, okay, Um, just because someone believes in God, just because someone goes to church, perhaps even for you this morning, uh, you've been kind of uh, dancing around the edges of Christianity, but you've never fully entered in. 
And so what Jesus is, is doing is he's in, inviting those who have fully entered in to come and to learn about what life looks like in the kingdom of God, what it means to be a true disciple, what is essential Christianity. And it says that Jesus sat down. Now, I don't have a chair here because I'm not only not like Jesus a lot of the time. This is another way I'm not like Jesus. Okay, I, like, I can't teach and sit down. Right? So thankfully, 21st century, our culture, the, the, the teachers, preachers like, don't have to sit. Okay? But, but in first century uh, Judaism, it was, it was a, a sign of authority when the teacher would sit and teach those who were gathering around him. And just, just so you know, okay, and, and lest you like, kind of chastise the pastors of Redemption Hill, you know, some, sometimes very warranted, by the way. Um, but, you know, lest you think that Jesus only preached for 15 minutes, which is how fast you could read these three chapters, uh, needless to say, this was probably not only hours of teaching, but perhaps days. So what, what Matthew captures for us is a summary of the highlights of what Jesus is laying out. And I'm not saying like every Sunday we should preach for hours or days, all right? We're not going to do that today. Um, but, but just like there was a hunger for what Jesus, and by the way, can we disagree? I'm not Jesus, right? Like you would just say, hey, if Jesus was up here, like, it's okay, come on, like, what about, and don't care about lunch, but like, it's Tanner, like, I'm hungry. Uh, anyway, so, um, so, so, so not only that, but it says that he went up on the mountain. And, and if we read the Old Testament, uh, what we would then start to remember is that Moses, who was the, 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 leader of the people of Israel who brought them out of captivity and slavery in Egypt on the exodus to the promised land, to redemption, okay? It says in Deuteronomy 18 that God would raise up for the people a prophet like me from among you, from among your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so Matthew portrays Jesus as the true and greater Moses who is instructing the people in the laws, the ways of God, saying, this is what God wants for you. This is what God invites you to. Come on in and follow him. And Jesus begins by providing a series of statements on the blessed life. And these are known as the Beatitudes. And so you heard eight times, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. What does it mean to be blessed? I mean, this is, this is a term that we uh, hear a lot in our culture, right? Like politicians, uh, sincere or insincere, leverage it all like, God bless you and God bless the United States of America, right? It's just like we hear the words blessing all the time. Perhaps you even say like, we're going to say the blessing before we eat a meal as, as, a, as a way of saying we're going to uh, com like commit this time of, of eating, recognizing that God provided for us. What does that mean to be blessed? Some scholars and even some translations of the Bible would say, happy are those who are poor. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the meek. And while that, that gets at part of the meaning of the word blessing, there's something that's much deeper running through the word. To be blessed is to experience the kindness and the favor of God. To be blessed is to 
be living under the provision of God and according to his gracious intention for our lives. And so in the very beginning, when God created man, uh, he had a perfect design for our world, and there was complete what uh, the Jews would call shalom, okay, the word peace, which doesn't simply mean the absence of conflict, but complete harmony and flourishing, life as it was intended by God, life as we desire it to be even today. So to live under the blessing of God is to to live under his, his rule and reign, is to experience, listen, his smile on you, which, which will lead to more than just like a fleeting feeling of happiness that comes and goes, okay? But it will lead to lasting joy, what you long for. Like, I just know, I don't even have to like, I don't even have to know you to know that you long for joy. You long for something that will satisfy you. You long for something that will carry you through life in such a way that, that you're not just tossed around by the circumstances of life, this is what Jesus speaks to us. As one scholar says, these words are formally declarative, but implicitly hortatory. And some of you just forgot your English class and you need me to explain that, all right? So like a declarative statement is just like, hey, this is true. This is just a statement of fact. And so these, these Beatitudes, they come across as statements of fact, right? Blessed are the poor, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peacemakers. But at the same time, they are also implicitly hortatory, all right, which is a way of saying they are exhortative, which is a way of saying they are meant to encourage us. Got that? Forget hortatory, forget exhortative, just remember, encouraging, all right? That they're meant to not just say like, hey, this is the way it is, but this is the way it should continue to be. So lean in. Keep, keep, like, pray and seek after, listen, are you ready? Increasing measures of what Jesus says the blessed life is all about. They encourage us to a better way, a better and deeper experience with God through Christ. And I also want to point out one more thing here. I love what blessing says about the blesser. I don't know what your view of God here is this morning. I don't know what your view of Jesus is here this morning. But these words tell us that Jesus is an encourager. That he comes alongside of us. That he puts his arm around us. And he says, press on. Keep going. Keep growing. Keep finding the life that I made you to live. And so these first four Beatitudes, they expose our spiritual need before God. They invite us to come to God empty-handed to receive his fullness. And we see this in four, uh, different, these four different statements. Number one, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. And poverty was a common experience of first century Israel. There there weren't many people who were materially rich. And so the poverty, just, just seeing how much they had needs in life was just 
evident for them uh, as they journeyed from day to day, relying on the provision of of, uh, agricultural uh, success and, and the generosity sometimes of others. And so Jesus says, blessed are the poor. And, and, and if we read the Gospels, as we read the Gospels, we find that Jesus has a heart for the poor. He has a heart for those who are physically outcast. This is what I love about the Gospel of Luke. Luke just emphasizes it again and again and again. But here we need to understand that it is not primarily economic, although the economic reality is not detached from this, right? Because oftentimes those who are physically poor see their spiritual poverty all the quicker, but Jesus' concern is more theological and spiritual than it is economic. That's why he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Jesus is saying, we must recognize. And this is, what this is, listen, this is just a recognition of the reality of our souls. It's not that we're like making ourselves spiritually poor or where we're like we were once spiritually rich and then we kind of give up some of our spiritual riches so we can become spiritually poor. Jesus is saying like recognizing your spiritual bankruptcy before God. We get this funny notion that we can come to the perfect, let me say the infinitely perfect infinitely holy, infinitely just, infinitely loving God, and that we can kind of appease our way back into his favor by bringing enough good things where God is kind of, if we're just being honest, he's just kind of impressed with us. You know what I'm saying? Like you just, you just, you did enough this, this week. You did enough in your life. This is how many people in our city conceive of God in the afterlife that just like when I get there, uh, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. And I'm just going to show God that. I'm just going to present that to him and show him that I tried to love, love people and I tried to do enough good things. But listen, we miss out on how holy and amazingly glorious God is. We have nothing to offer God. We are empty-handed before him. Our sin and rebellion against this holy God makes us spiritually bankrupt. We have to say, God, I am completely dependent on you. But, but, but here's what I love. Think about this. Um, some of you keep up with sports. Um, you live in Boston, so she, you should know that the, the Red Sox are in the playoffs right now. And, um, you know, we took care of business in game one. Thank you, Chris Sale. Uh, last night wasn't so great, and so the series is tied one-to-one. And now we go to New York for the next couple of games, and, I mean, hopefully we just win both games, but, you know, there's a decent chance that, We split the games again, which would mean game five is back here in Boston. I think it's next Thursday night. Now, now what would happen if if a couple of us said, hey, you know, it would be really great to get into the game. Let's go. And and we, we come with our wallets, and we realize that there's nothing in the wallet. We're just, we're just not getting in, right? This is not going to happen. We can just hear the roars from Lansdowne Street, right? But 
But, but with God, we come to him and we have nothing to offer him. And he says, this is exactly how you get all the way in. God wants us to see that we don't have it in and of ourselves. That we actually need his grace. We need him to give us the strength and the power to live the life that he is calling us to live. And so why is this so important, church? Why is this so important for you? Do you know why this is important? Because until you see your need, you will not cry out for help. Until you see your need before God, you will not ask for his grace and his mercy to bring you to where you could never bring yourself. And so let me plead with you today. Listen, do not try to get into the kingdom of heaven by your own credentials. Your spiritual resume does not stack up. What you need is a better resume, better credibility, which Jesus offers us as a gift when we open our hands and say, I need what you've done for me. I need your grace. I can only come in on the basis of what you put in my bank account. I cannot emphasize this enough. This, listen, this is not simply how we enter into the kingdom. This is how we live every single day. We live as those who say, God, I need, this is why we sing this song, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. I was singing this song with my girls last night uh, because I knew we were going to sing it today, and I usually try to pick a song. Um, by the way, it's not just pastor hacks, okay? We actually put the songs in the newsletter every week, so you can also sing the songs with your friends or your kids, all right? It's just a tip. Um, but I was sing a song to kind of prepare for the next uh, morning, and, and Kess said she raised her hand. I'm always like teaching my kids, like, hey, can we focus in prayer? You know what I'm saying? Like kids, they just have these thoughts and they speak up, you know, and they interrupt and, you know, which is cool and you just let that slide, you know, at least 60% of the time. But, you know, just tried to like focus us in and, um, and so she like raises her hand again after we finish the song and she says, Daddy, next time we sing that, I don't want to sing our, I want to sing every second. Wow. She understands a bit of the kingdom of God and, and and, and, and as Jesus goes on here, he, he not only says, like, blessed are the poor in spirit, but he says, they're blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, so, so what's going on here is that there is a present possession of the kingdom of God for those who are poor. Jesus is saying, this is how you get in. You're poor in spirit. You say, God, I need you. Have mercy on me. I don't have it in and of myself. And if you look very carefully, as we read, um, verse 3, the promise is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, but 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, it says, for they shall or they will receive this or that. So, so, so these blessings are primarily future, but they are also present. 
And verse 10 says the same thing. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar, says, there's little doubt that here the kingdom sense is primarily future, but the present envelope should not be written off as insignificant. In other words, the bookends of the Beatitudes are, hey, this belongs to you now. The kingdom of God has, you've entered into the kingdom because you've entered into following Jesus. But you'll fully realize, you will fully possess the greater realities, the greater magnitude, the greater scope of what God wants to give you in eternity in the coming kingdom of God. And so I just want you to see that this is, this is a now reality, but it's also a then reality. These promises, now, then, and I think we should just pray, but God, more now until then. Huh? Come on now. More now until then. I want more of your comfort. I want more of, of the knowledge that I belong to you, God. I want more satisfaction. So I just want to ask you very personally here this morning, this is not between you and the person set beside you, all right? This is just between you and God. Have you acknowledged your need for God before God? Have you come to God empty-handed and said, God, I don't, I don't have to impress you, and if I had to, I couldn't do it but I just receive what you want to give to me. This life in Christ, abundant life, eternal life, I receive from your gracious hands. If you have not done that yet in your life, why not today? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then number two, Jesus goes on. And, and what I love about it, I almost brought like a ladder, almost brought a ladder here this morning, except... Pastor Tanner is afraid of heights, <laughs> all right? So I was like, I don't want to do that, you know what I'm saying? But, but they're almost like steps of a progression. Like it starts here with poverty of spirit, and then it builds from there. And so Jesus then says, blessed are those who mourn. But, but what does he mean by that? That means another surprising statement. Jesus is like, hey, you poor in spirit, you're in a good spot. You're mourning, you're in a good spot. What does he mean? Well, this morning happens at at least two fundamental levels. Number one, Jesus says in John 16, 33, in this world you will have trouble. So like we live in a, in, a, in a messed up world. We live in a troubled world. We live in a broken world. And as we experience the injustice around us, and we, and we suffer at the hands of other people and just the realities of this broken world in which we live, uh, then, then, then it causes us points of pain and discouragement and even sometimes it leads us to shed tears and mourn over the brokenness of our world. And this is why. This is why Jesus is called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The very Son of God is called a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Why is that? It's because Jesus, better than any other person, fully God, fully man, he saw the gap, the gap between the way things ought to be shalom and the way things are, our broken, sinful world, and it crushed his soul. And so he spent many days just weeping in sorrow over the fact that 
People don't know God. People don't see God's ways. There's so much injustice going on around him. But the difference between Jesus and us is that Jesus never mourned over his own sin. Why is that? He had no sin. He never sinned. The the, the God-man never lived in a way, even for a second, that was contrary to God's perfect will for our lives. But that's not true for us. So not only do we mourn over the brokenness around us, but we also mourn for the brokenness within us. When is the last time that your personal sin before God caused you to shed a tear? When when is the last time that, that your wrongdoing against God, your rebellion against God, like drove you physically to your knees? Like like you just you just you weren't right, you weren't the same person because there was like this sense of of internal mourning before God that you grieved his heart. Like this is about a relationship, right? Like God made us for a relationship to be close with him. And so this is why we have to practice repentance like every single day, continually turning from the wrongdoings that we commit and, and, and not just seeing our sin and recognizing our sin, but actually feeling a godly sorrow for the sin in our lives. And I know you're probably thinking, like, Tanner's been a while. I mean, maybe, maybe not for all of us, but probably for most of us, we would say, like, it's been a while. And you're even wondering, like, why is that? And, and my best answer to that question is that we need clearer vision. We need clear vision. Here's what, like, we need to see God for who he is. We need to see God for how holy he is. We need to see God for how glorious he is. Like, the radiance of God exposes our darkness in a new way. His excellencies expose our imperfections in a new way. And so that as we see how, like, this, is, this is one of the paradoxes of the Christian life, okay? The more you grow in Christ, the more your sin bothers you and the more you actually see your own sin. Because you have a clearer vision of the holiness of God and the beauty of God and the infinite perfections of God that when you see specks of of impurities in your own life, it bothers you all the more. And you say, God, not again. Oh, God, please, not again. I'm sick of that. I'm sick of dishonoring your name. I'm sick of not shining brighter for your name. Oh, God, change me. Make me like Christ.
Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What, is it, what does it mean to be meek? This is a beautiful thing. Like, you remember the progression, right? Like we, step, we step forward. We step up the ladder. Poor in spirit, mourning before God. And now meek primarily before other people. You see, someone who has humbled themselves before God and sees who they are before who he is, now, not only sees themselves in proper relation before God, but now they have a better understanding and a better view of who they are before other people. And so meekness is humility expressed outwardly toward other people. That's what meekness is. Meekness conveys the idea of gentleness. The meek are unassuming and self-effacing. They're more concerned about others than themselves. And just because every pastor and preacher has to say it when they preach the Sermon on the Mount, okay, let me just just get it out there, okay? Meekness is not weakness. Come on, you can tweet that, all right? Meekness, Meekness is not weakness, all right? Meek people are not weak people. They are strong. They are confident. And yet, because they are controlled by God and they are self controlled before others, they can simply defer for the good of other people. They don't have, listen, can you imagine if you become increasingly meek, what this will do for all of your relationships, what it'll do for your friendships, what it'll do for your home, what it'll do for the workplace. When you in humility before others, like you just don't have to be right all the time. Anybody struggle with that? You know you're right. And so you just want to, Put your foot down, I'm right here, and I'm going to speak louder, and I'm going to make more arguments to show people how right I am. Just me, okay, just me. I get it, I get it, just me. The meek, like, they, 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 don't, they don't lash out in anger. They, they, they don't speak unkind words, but, but they serve other people. Listen, the meek... The meek are the ones that advance the kingdom of God. If you want to look at, for some meek people, like see who shows up at 7.30 around here in the morning. Go down to the nursery and see who's holding the babies week after week. The meek, the meek shall inherit the earth. And this promise, listen, this promise, I mean, these are, these are amazing, like, wow, like, Jesus, what amazing. No wonder they said he, he spoke like no one ever spoke before. He has authority that we've never seen when he speaks about the kingdom of God. Because he says that the meek shall inherit the earth. And again, this is, a, this is a present possession. I mean, Paul even says, just go read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, okay? He says, like, whether Apollos or Paul or life or death, or the present or this future, all is yours. Everything already belongs to you because you belong to Christ. You have no lack. You have everything because you belong to the kingdom of God. And yet there is a greater reality ahead. The new heavens and the new earth, the the, the full consummation of the kingdom of God. When we will possess it all, we will reign with Christ. Whatever belongs to Christ belongs to us. It's a really, really good deal. I don't understand, rightly understood, how people could reject the Christian message. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then finally, 
Jesus goes on and he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Some translations will say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. This word satisfied in relation to the context of hungering and thirsting, it refers to a stomach completely filled or satisfied. And so what what Jesus is saying is that you, you, you have such an intense longing to know God, to pursue God, and to live rightly before God. That's what righteousness means here. It's not positional righteousness that we receive because we trust in Jesus and we received right standing before God, but is actually living out right actions, thoughts, and deeds before God and before other people. And so God, Jesus is saying, look, if, if, you, if you will come to God with empty hands, he will fill you and he will satisfy you with everything you need to live your life according to his plan. Marcia and I just started a new tradition on Thursdays. Every, every like school year when, when, the, when the, 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 the calendar turns and the girls get back in school, I kind of recalibrate my calendar. It's one of the beauties of being a pastor. Pastors work super hard. I know sometimes people think like all you do is just like prepare a little 30-minute talk and then you like take off the rest of the week. Uh, but we actually have to like guard ourselves against working, uh, you know, way over 50 or 60-hour work weeks. Um, but, but anyway, so I, I kind of reposition my schedule so that on Thursday afternoons, I can be free to go pick up our daughters from school. And, and the new tradition has been uh, two out of the last three uh, Thursdays, uh, I have gotten in the car and I've looked at the dashboard, has this ever happened to you, and, and I've seen that that little light is on with the little needle hovering above the, the E line. You know, you know what I'm saying? I mean... I mean, I'm sure I was the one that, you know, didn't get gas. It would never have been my wife uh, who would have maybe not remembered and and done that to me again. But, um, you know, uh, so this means that now I'm calculating. I have 7.6 miles before I, you know, I'm able to pick up. Not only our kids, we have this ride share with the Agbula family. And so, you know, like Michael's preschool is a couple miles away from, you know, the, 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 the elementary school. And so this means that I'm like stopping. Yes, Lord, help me to stop and not... Uh, you know, rolling through the stops. I'm searching on ways, finding the next uh, gas station. Um, but I'm, I'm like finding the next, sorry, Felicia, um, finding the next gas station, like where I can get some gas so that we can make our destination. Because we need the resources to get to where we are called to go. And, and so this is, this is a picture uh, of of. of of, of how this works in the kingdom, that, that our lives, we need to be empty, okay, to, to receive God's filling. Come to God with empty hands so that he can fill our lives and give us everything we need to make the destination. This is the invitation today. And before I wrap up, and I want to go ahead and invite the music team to come forward, um, let me just say this, because I know this can happen. This is, this is the crazy thing about uh, the Christian life, and this is the crazy thing about uh, pastors and churches. Um, we could spend the next three and a half to four months in these words of Jesus, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and we could actually miss the main point 
of the Sermon on the Mount. So please don't miss it. The point of the Sermon on the Mount is not an invitation to a new normal that is constituted in a new set of behaviors. The new normal is an invitation to the life of Christ. So this is, in case you missed that, we can miss the forest for the trees, okay? The trees, like, poor in spirit, I need to do that. I need to mourn. I need to love my enemies. I love to pray, and I want other people to look at me and see how, like, prayerful I am, okay? And we can miss that in all of these instructions, in all of these actions and attitudes, the point is that Jesus is inviting us into his kingdom. We are following him. No one displayed poverty of spirit, mourning for sin, meekness, and a hunger for God like Jesus. This is exactly why Jesus came. In Isaiah 61, it prophesied of the the coming Messiah. And when Jesus started his public ministry in his hometown of Nazareth, he stood up and he read from the scroll of Isaiah chapter 61. And what does it say there? It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, Jesus. And he has anointed me for what? To bring good news to the poor. To bind up the brokenhearted to comfort those who mourn. This is why Jesus came for you. He didn't just come for the world in a generic sense. He came for you. So that if you will come to him with empty hands and say, Jesus, I need you. I need your mercy. I need your love. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I need your power. He will fill your empty hands with himself. So I just want to invite us to pray. And last week, I love last week, we had two people who said, I want to step into the life of Christ for the very first time. Like, I just, I need this new normal. I need this new life in Christ. And so if that's you today, listen, don't, don't leave this, this auditorium, don't leave this high school without saying, you know what, I'm putting a stake in the ground today. I'm committing my life to the new normal of the kingdom of God that is brought to us by the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Commit to follow him today for the first time or for the 10,000th time to say, God, I need you. I come to you poor. I come to you powerless. I need your mercy to fill me, to help me to live this life that you've called me to lead. God, thank you. Thank you for what you do. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for this unbelievably deep and yet simple, costly and yet full of grace invitation to live our lives for you. And so God, it's our prayer today that not one of us would miss out on the life that you invite us to. We receive you today. We receive you through Christ.